he did talk about devilish things. The name Pazuzu Algarod was echoed coast to coast when the bodies of Tommy Dean Welch and Josh Wetzler were found in his backyard. His condition is not that common. But before the two men were killed in his home on the East Coast, he was born on the West Coast and under a different name. And he said, Mom, I just can't take it anymore. A more common name with a more ordinary personality, but became more and more removed from it until he was no more. This one was two days before he died. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy, and this is seduced by Satan. John Alexander Lawson was born in San Francisco, California in December of 1978, raised primarily by his mom, Cynthia, who was originally from Forsyth County, North Carolina. And he was little Johnny. Little Johnny was not right, and everybody knew it. They moved back to Forsyth County when John was two. Like any loving mother, Cynthia took a lot of pictures of her son in his crib with light blonde hair growing out, accentuating his baby blue eyes, dressed up as a cowboy, hat and all, a normal family, a seemingly normal boy. There should have been help for him. Today, Cynthia's home is somewhat of a shrine to her son. Pictures of him in every room. Well, he was in the Cub Scouts and I was the den leader. A wide smile in most of the snapshots. One in her kitchen shows him in a light blue Royals baseball jersey, bat on his knee. And then he played softball for um, Northwest Little League. And then he got into football. The Pofftown Packers football team, his blonde hair grown out at length, flowing in the wind. Different jersey numbers showing his participation throughout the years. And he just kind of, no more sports. His final sport, Cynthia says, wasn't a team one. Instead, skateboarding, and she says he excelled well beyond his years. The family dynamic changed when Cynthia married a man by the name of Johnny. They moved to a new home located at 2749 Knob Hill Drive, Clements. Young John was excited about the idea of having a larger family, but as time went on, Johnny and John's relationship worsened. John became a recluse, mostly staying in his room. Eventually, Cynthia says he gave her an ultimatum, forcing her to choose between her husband and her son. Because I told Johnny that I wanted to just maybe I can work with him and get him out of this state of just wanting to be by himself all the time. Johnny was gone, and neighbors say that's when they started seeing John outside again. We had so much fun. I mean, he always made me laugh. In a picture in Cynthia's living room, both she and John look perfectly happy. Cynthia in a red dress with blue and pink, almost floral patterns. Her necklace is red too, with large beads. Earrings red as well, so is her lipstick. A slightly darker shade surrounding a wide smile. Her eyebrows lean slightly upward, making her expression that much more joyous. Her hair is cut short, but still blonde. John looking pre to early teens, his hair is a little darker than it was in the football pictures, closer to brown at that point. It's medium length, his bangs parted from right to left, the sides of his haircut covering the tips of his ears. His smile relaxed, he looks like your all-American boy, polo shirt with blue and gray horizontal stripes and all. But in the mid to late 2000s, his neighbors started to notice a change. He did talk about devilish things. 
nothing that was outlandish, just, you know, that there was a war between God and the devil. The next set of pictures show him with his hair a little longer, a guitar in hand, flipping off the camera. His hair spiked, Johnny Rotten-esque, then his hair was shaved off altogether. He'd repeated second grade and at West Forsyth High School, repeated freshman year too. Yeah, and that's basically because he didn't go to school. It wasn't because he failed, he just didn't go to school. Then he dropped out altogether. Documents would later show he started regular use of alcohol around age 13. He was wanting to hang out with people that I didn't want him to hang out with, and he didn't like that, and he got angry with me. Cynthia started to recognize that her son was having some mental issues. She brought him to what was then Reynolds Mental Health on Highland Avenue in Winston-Salem, but he wasn't there long. I think that I loved him too much, and then, you know, I said, okay, whatever you want to do. Soon, his desire to change how he saw the world developed from alcohol use to hard drugs. There was this one guy that was um, doing math and got John into doing that, and I don't know if I just turned a blind eye or... Cynthia says John used for years along the way, changing his name from John Alexander Lawson to Pazuzu Algarod. His face tattoos grew from what looked like a gash on his cheek to the lines, dots, and other designs we've talked about. One picture of him displayed in an office area in Cynthia's home shows long dreadlocks in some of those tattoos, so it was an in-between picture. While showing it to us, Cynthia let us in on a nickname she had for him. And the warrior. Why do you call him that? Because he was a Native American. We were part Native American, and he was proud of that. Which provides some clarity to the Native American reference in the note warding off law enforcement that was on the front door of their Knob Hill Drive home. No permission to enter this land unless you are a native, since this is their land. About a year after Josh Wetzler and Tommy Dean Welch were murdered, another man, Joseph Chandler, went missing from the Clemens area. He was found shot dead near the Yadkin River in neighboring Yadkin County. Pazuzu was charged with accessory after the fact to involuntary manslaughter in connection to Chandler's death. A man named Nicholas Rizzi was hit with the involuntary manslaughter charge. And Pazuzu was accused of assisting him in attempting to escape arrest by letting Rizzi stay at the home on Knob Hill and telling investigators a Hispanic male named Pete was involved in the crime. To determine if he was mentally able to proceed on the charge, Pazuzu was sent to Dorothea Dix Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the narrative of that forensic evaluation gives us the most detailed look that we have into his mind. They're very sensational, these cases, but they're very rare. He was admitted to the hospital on October 4th, 2010 a year to the day after Tommy Dean Welch was reported missing, and four years to the day before Forsyth County deputies applied for the search warrant, which would inevitably be his downfall. The doctor documented his appearance, hair long, uncombed, with pieces of metallic wire wound in as part of his braids, numerous tattoos on his face, trunk, arms, and hands, a scar, an inverted cross right on his forehead, Faint scars on both cheeks, curving from the corners of his mouth to the angles of his jaw. A healing burn injury on his arm, which Pazuzu said was a brand representing, quote, part of his religion. The tips of his teeth, 
showing intentional tampering with Pazuzu admitting he'd tried to file them to points years before. His hygiene was poor with notable body odor, and he told the doctor he bathed no more than once a year and hadn't brushed his teeth in years because he felt that would strip his body of defenses to ward off infection and illness. Pazuzu told the doctor he left school in the ninth grade because that's when his phobia around people started. He'd been in special education courses because of learning problems. He stated he was spiritually married to his girlfriend, Amber Birch, and said she was two and a half months pregnant with their child. If that was true, and if so, whatever became of the baby, we do not know. Pazuzu said he practiced a Sumerian religion ever since he was 17, but acknowledged that he and Birch were the only ones who practiced it. He was very concerned when admitted to the hospital because he had to perform a specific ritual every month during the Black Moon. And Cynthia told the doctor the ritual involved killing a small animal as part of a sacrifice, something one of the people we encountered during our first days at the Knob Hill home claimed to have witnessed. And his eyes would kind of get a little, like, glazy, like, almost not there. Like, like the inner part of him would kind of phase away. About once a month, and it was usually on a full moon, they sacrificed at least one rabbit, and then he would eat the heart of it and then burn the flesh of the rabbit. He also detailed going to Daymark Recovery Services for mental health treatment in his early 20s before dropping out after a year because of, quote, transportation issues. There, he'd been prescribed Zoloft and two other medicines, but didn't like taking them because he said they made him feel, quote, like a zombie. He said he'd been diagnosed with agoraphobia, an anxiety disorder where people fear and avoid places that can make them panic, feel trapped, helpless, or embarrassed. Adding when he was outside of his home, his anxiety got so high, he would faint. Later in the report, Cynthia had told the doctor that Pazuzu practiced a religion where he worshipped a dragon called Tiamat. She was worried that if he wasn't able to make a sacrifice during the dark moon, he might try to kill himself. She said Pazuzu was generally peaceful, but did admit he was currently on probation for assaulting her. The doctor's analysis and opinions agreed that Pazuzu had a significant anxiety problem, classic symptoms of agoraphobia, and he met the criteria for a diagnosis of schizotypal personality disorder paired with a significant drinking problem. This case is much different, I think. It's a, a real outlier. Dr. Phil Levine, a psychiatrist in Burlington, North Carolina, reviewed the evaluation. He says people with Pazuzu's disorders are far more likely to have violence committed against them than to be the one becoming violent. I can't connect up from a schizotypal personality structure to murders. I, I just don't know how that happens. And I think it's very rare for someone with this kind of condition to become a murderer. We asked Dr. Levine to try to describe how Pazuzu's mind likely worked. He probably would have been intensely paranoid and fearful. Uh, uh, he would have been driven by his anxiety to do things uh, that um, he believed would uh, be useful or helpful to himself, like drinking and taking drugs and so forth. But his alcoholism and drug use would probably make his anxiety issues worse, and medications were unlikely to help him. But the unusual ideas and, and thinking 
uh, I'm sure contributed to his becoming a criminal. How he was enabled or followed could have been a result of several factors. How easy is it for somebody, I guess, to manipulate people when you have kind of that persona around you and that, and that look to you, I guess? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the individual who's manipulative and controlling and the people who are passive and sort of uh, connected to him in some way that it makes it hard for them to, to get out. Pazuzu's home, which we described in episode two, had been declared unsafe for human habitation just days after Josh and Tommy's bodies were found. Actually, before they were even identified. Three times this property has been sold back to the note holder. The property was sold back to Wells Fargo, which placed the sole bid on it for more than $123,000. That was on April 7th, 2015. Still, neighbors were worried someone else could swoop in and outbid the bank during a 10-day upset bid period. To me, it would have to be somebody that had a lot of money and somebody that was crazy, and we've had all the crazy we can deal with. Those 10 days came and went. Workers who said they were there on behalf of the bank showed up a few days later and on Friday, April 24th. At 8.45 in the morning, a track hoe lifted its arm and made first contact with the red brick of 2749 Knob Hill Drive. <laughs> Neighbors erupted in cheers with the equipment starting at the front of the home. It came down piece by piece, collapsing, causing the dust and debris to be released into the sky, as neighbors described it as the evil floating out. Very mixed emotions. I definitely am relieved that the house is gone. We're all relieved that the house is gone. But um, there were a lot of people affected. A spectacle. Some set up chairs, even food, as they watched their tensions and anxieties disappear. Wood, brick, drywall, and piles. The innards of the home were exposed. The chimney toppled until the home was just a wall then just a pile. The debris removed, the lot was leveled, the fence and shed torn up, new seed planted, giving neighbors a vastly different view out of their windows. This is a nice green lot, it's fine with me. The next month, Pazuzu was transferred from the Forsyth County Detention Center to Central Prison in Raleigh. He tried to commit suicide and then Chief Deputy Brad Stanley said they had to make a choice. So he had uh, some occurrences while incarcerated uh, in our detention center after being charged with uh, murder. And so uh, based on what we could provide, the service level that he needed to keep him safe was more than what we uh, could provide. The decision was made and obviously communicated with the district attorney's office whereby a safekeeping order was uh, initiated and he was transferred to central prison. Cynthia went there to visit him, taking a new picture of him at the prison, which she keeps in her office in front of his baby blanket, which hangs from a wall. I just, I just, I knew he couldn't live like that. He wrote her constant letters, which she keeps in a stack in her bedside table. On October 26th, 2015, he penned her a letter, which she removed from its envelope and slowly unfolded with care. He always said, Mom, of course, and Shaka Muku, which means what's up in Arabic. And he says, I'm so bored. Got a letter from you and one from Amber. 
Um, <laughs> this place is just, I despise the human race. People are ugly and pointless creatures. I sit back and watch them and they anger me. I should get a medal for murdering these stupid. <laughs> but, um, maybe when I'm dead, the gods of chaos shall grant me the power. <laughs> I mean, he just. He was so hurt and angry, you know? And so, how's things your way when are you and Kim coming to see me again? Well, I'm hungry and tired, so I'll write you again here soon. I love you. With tears in her eyes, she folds the letter back up and puts it back in her drawer. Two days after it was written, on October 28th, 2015, Pazuzu was dead. He'd committed suicide in Central Prison. An autopsy determined his cause of death was severe blood loss from a deep wound to a major blood vessel in his left arm. Didn't take long for the news to reach the families of his victims, like Stacy Carter. I didn't really feel much, honestly. I wasn't surprised. I never knew the guy. Um, and I felt like that his trial wasn't gonna do anything except maybe give us a little more information. Um, he was gonna live his life out in jail or, you know, he took a different route, but either way, I mean, it, not, there was no good ending. And Josh's mother, Martha, in upstate New York. I wanna know why, why he did that, you know? But I'm not so sure I'll get an answer to that. That only proves to me that he knew what he'd done and that, you know, he, didn't want to be responsible for addictions. Azuzu had told Cynthia his wishes for his body after death. Please, you know, I want to be cremated and I want you to put some of my ashes in the ocean, which I did. The rest of his ashes are in an urn in her living room with a picture of him in a small box, which plays Jim Croce's Time in a Bottle. I would spend them with you. If I had a box for wishes and dreams that had never come true, the box would be empty except for the memory of how they were answered by you. In her new home, a mere 15 minutes from Knob Hill Drive, she sits quietly at night. A few cats, one a recently adopted kitten, keep her company as she sits across from her son's remains, reflecting on what she could have, would have, should have done differently. I feel like I failed him. I feel like I failed him. Just, maybe it was this morning I could do it, but I didn't. I mean, I would give him the world. And while Cynthia mostly blames herself for the path her son chose, Stacy believes more could have been done before he showed signs of being a murderer and after he became one. You know, you take somebody like Pazuzu and you can blow him up and you can say, you know what? He's, he's a loser, you know, he's a loser, who cares? But if we don't help and do something in those situations, it affects everybody. You can say, well, you know, I'm doing a good job as a parent, I'm raising a good kid, you know, but you still have to worry about that school shooter showing up and, you know, sending your kid to school. 
The other part is to see if we could get in the house and see. And we were able to. Pazuzu was dead, but Amber Birch and Crystal Matlock would still have their days in court. And the search warrant released when they were sentenced would reveal what many thought could have prevented years of questions and at least one death. If you can find one item, uh, and then you can hold the scene for a period of time. The decision the sheriff's office made that resulted in them not finding Josh and Tommy's bodies the first time they searched Pazuzu's yard, and how their families are still being affected 10 years after their deaths, coming up in the conclusion of Seduced by Satan. Get a look at the house and pictures of Pazuzu through the years. It's all there on our website, myfox8.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend, rate it, comment on it, subscribe to it. Seduced by Satan was written and reported on by me, Michael Hennessy, edited by Matt Jensen. Joe Doherty helped with some of the interviews. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. <laughs>